Hello and welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary. And today I'm talking about public pensions and a new measure that's going to start being part of actuarial reports where there's going to be a very different number in the actuarial reports and we'll start seeing if those actuarial reports for the public pensions will be uh, publicly available as they have been or or specifically this number uh, because it's going to be very different from the standard actuarial measurement it's a number that's going to be required to be part of actual reports actually for any pension obligations but the difference is for private pensions uh well maybe not multi-employer pensions but for single employer private pensions the measurement is already close to this amount um and i have talked about this before and this is from actual standard of practice four but let me explain why I'm talking about this. Uh, Larry Pollack, who's uh, also an actuary, wrote a piece uh, called New Disclosure Rules Expose Bad Actuarial Finance Obscures Trillions of Public Pension Debt. And he lays out the math. So let me actually read the beginning of the piece. Consider a 45-year-old state government employee earning $75,000 per year in a job that worked provides no retirement benefits. This is a theoretical, by the way, and I'm sorry, yes, I'm inserting my voice. In order to nudge her to save something for retirement, her employer changes her pay package to $73,000 in cash plus a zero-coupon treasury bond paying $5,000 in 20 years. The bond costs $2,000. Instead of keeping the bond, This employee could sell the bond and, if she wishes, invest $2,000 in an S&P 500 index fund and hope to end up with more than $5,000 in 20 years while accepting the risk that she'll end up with less. Regardless of what she does with the bond, her total compensation remains $75,000. Okay, so you get the math. Started out with $75,000, no benefit. Then the employer changed it to, okay, I'm going to give you 73000 in cash, and then 2000 of that is going to go to a treasury bond that's supposed to go into a retirement savings account, and this is a treasury bond that pays $5,000 in 20 years, okay? But, you know, you can, of course, money is fungible, change that to some other asset if you want. Now, suppose that her employer pays her $73,000 and just promises to pay her an additional $5,000 in 25 years. If the employer is good for it, her total compensation is still worth $75,000. Behind the scenes, her employer could set up a trust fund to fund the obligation and contribute the $2,000 bond, which would pay off the promised $5,000 in 20 years. Up. Larry, I think you you missed a 20 years and 25 years, blah, blah, blah. Okay. 
But instead, the employer hires an actuary who says that investing in a diversified portfolio, including risky assets, means that the employer can expect to earn $7, uh, sorry, not $7, 7% per annum, and therefore needs to set aside only $1,292 to fully fund the employer's debt to the employee. And I'm not going to do uh, this math, I'm just going to assume 7%, I guess it's either in 20 or 25 years. Larry, you might want to check your numbers. Um, <laughs> um, in other words, the actuary would use the riskier portfolio to justify discounting the payment using 7% per annum, as opposed to the 4.69% implicit in the treasury bond that was described above to perfectly hedging the obligation. The actuary's report would then show a liability of $1,292 instead of $2,000, the actual value of debt to the employee. And so this is what I would call a fake arbitrage. And as Larry is uh, writing this, this is the reasoning that's the basis for the actuarial determined contribution as well as financial accounting for public pension plans. So these are the traditional defined benefit plans sponsored by state and local governments. And by the way, Larry is very simplifying this because there is um, all sorts of tricks beyond just this discount rate that they use to make the amount that they have to put in this actuarial determined contribution such as, oh, we'll pay more later, which I don't think he gets into as like a level percent of payroll, uh, which is also another, <laughs> I'll just say it, bullshit move that uh, various plans have used to make it look like they have to put in less now and we'll pay more later. And in some cases, I saw this for Nevada, it has worked out very poorly. Okay, so this is a fake arbitrage. This is a $708 difference, and that's a huge percentage difference. When state officials trumpet making full actuarial determined contributions to a state pension plan, and this is this example of $1,292 and not an actual $2,000, okay? And we get a lot of this. And I've written about this in the past where there's a lot of public pension plans that make, quote, full contributions. And yet, and yet, the funded status using this 7% or actually in the past 8% discount rate um, on a balance sheet basis erodes even though the investment performance actually on average was meeting what it was supposed to and they're making these full contributions and yet the funded status erodes isn't that interesting um and larry goes on to explain you know in real financial economics outside the actuarial world uh, we have what's called um you know risk free or risk neutral valuation where you're assuming you, we use these treasury rates and maybe the treasury rates was not appropriate. Um, so both Larry and I and the deceased Jeremy Gold and there have been other actuaries 
four years and I can go back <laughs> on my history in Stump, which I started in 2014. And then before Stump, I was on other people's blogs. I had written about it, that there should be a different kind of valuation. And, you know, it's not just me and Larry and Jeremy Gold. There's a lot of people and not just actuaries who have argued that the valuation for public pensions should be different from what it was. And we finally got, as he will say, the Actuarial Standards Board, uh, which defines professional standards for actuaries, and it's for U.S. practicing actuaries, by the way, finally acknowledged the criticisms and adopted a requirement for actuaries to calculate and disclose, starting with funding reports to be published mostly in 2024. And that's, we've been waiting for this to start. Um, some will start in 2025, and I'll explain that in a little bit, um, a liability measure more consistent with, you know, finance principles, with modern finance principles. The new measure provides valuable information not previously available in some balance sheet measure, and that, and though it's not perfect, and it will not affect the actual determined contributions or financial accounting. It will not be on, like, their consolidation consolidated financial reports, their ACFRs and, and that kind of thing. And that's okay. And I'll explain why that's okay as well. What is amusing to us is, and I've been waiting for these reports to start coming out because I've been wanting to react, respond to whatever language is going to be used to explain these numbers by the actuaries. What has been in actuarial reports before now is they will give the result or the net position. So what is the shortfall? Okay, what's the gap at the valuation rate? So let's use 7% since that's what Larry is using, though a lot of them are still using like 7.5% or 7.25%. And then uh, they'll say, okay, you know, there's a short, I'll just make it a round number. There's a short fall of a billion dollars in the funding level of the pensions. So the assets or the actuarial assets, and I really don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, so the net uh, pension liability is 1 billion. So that's the gap uh, as of the measurement date. And then they will give that net liability position or net pension liability uh, valued plus or minus one percentage point. And this is kind of a sensitivity test. So if it was 7%, they would measure it at 8% and measure it at 6%. And you're like, okay, so what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about that, that's kind of a sensitivity test, but uh, math people like me can use like a Taylor series expansion um, to approximate what that net pension liability would be at other interest rates, even though, yeah, it's nonlinear, but I can use something called duration and convexity to do a polynomial expansion of what the percentage change is in the net pension liability if it goes up, you know, a certain number of percentage points. The problem is, as I mentioned, it's nonlinear, and usually I want it to go a lot more 
than one percentage point down in the valuation rate. So I would have something that was a measurement at 7%, say, and I wanted to measure it at 4%. Though with um, recent interest rate levels, like the example Larry gave, 4.69%, recent interest rates have been a lot higher. Okay, so let me explain what this actuarial standard of practices, there's a whole bunch of them. I've talked about some of these before, um, and we are shorthand for them as ASOP, actuarial standard of practice, ASOP, and we say ASOP. Um, so ASOP 23, which is uh, data quality, that's my number one favorite. There's ASOP 41, which is actuarial communication. I love that one too. And I think it's ASOP 56, is it 53 or 56 modeling? I mean, those are my top three. But um, those are ones I use in my work all the time, even though I don't actually do actuarial work. But we'll move on from that. Um, so the one that Larry and now I am talking about is ASOP 4, measuring pension obligations and determining pension plan costs or contributions. And the one that's in effect right now, last revised December 2021, was the effective date February 15th, 2023. So it went into effect February 15th, but there's a lot of lags in this. And there's a reason. So Larry is saying most of the reports that will be coming out where this measure that we're talking about will start to be disclosed. We'll start seeing them in 2024 because of delays, like the data get to the actuaries. It takes time. And, and I will come back to that in a moment. These are supposed to be very long, you know, long-term obligations so that there's this big delay between, oh, you get a data and it's a couple years later before you have the statement or the measurement based on that measurement date coming out shouldn't be a big deal. And this is why we have actuarial smoothing of assets and this, that, and the other um, of trying to figure out what the contribution should be. And it really makes it, I shouldn't say anti-cyclical, but it makes it less volatile, which is what we would want for this kind of pension obligation. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. The issue is, of course, if they are too... hmm, risky too sunny in how they value or how they try to plan out how these pensions are to be funded, we get the kind of behavior, the ramp up in contributions we've seen in so many defined benefit pension plans in the public sector. And it makes them more fragile in my argument. Okay. So ASOP4 is actually one of many pension-related actuarial standards of practice. And one thing I want to point out about ASOP4, so measuring pension obligations and determining pension plan costs or contributions, notice it's not specific about whether it's a public pension or a private pension. It, it doesn't matter. It's for any kind of defined pension, any kind of uh, life contingent, pension obligation, etc. So let me go to section 1.2, which is about scope. All of these actuarial standards of practice have the same structure in terms of section. 
um, section. So section one is purpose, scope, cross-references, etc. So 1.1 is, is the purpose. So the purpose, uh, this actual standard of practice provides guidance to actuaries when performing actual services with respect to measuring obligations under a defined benefit pension plan, also referred to as plan or pension plan throughout the standard, and determining periodic costs or actuarial determined contributions for such plans. Other actuarial standards of practice address assumptions, asset valuation methods, and assessment of risk. This standard addresses broader measurement issues, including cost allocation procedures and contribution allocation procedures. This standard provides guidance for coordinating and integrating all of the elements of an actuarial valuation of a pension plan. So that's the purpose. Notice it doesn't matter who is the sponsor of the plan, if it's a government or a union or a you know, a single employer in the private sector does not matter. And that will make a dis difference. Um, I mean, the difference comes up later of what is going to happen because uh, section, that's section one, and, the, and then they go through the scope, and I'm not going to um, get into that too much. I mean, it's just like, what what kind of activities does it cover? But um, section two is always about definitions. But the item that I'm looking for is actually not in the definitions. I forgot. They moved it to section three. So section three is always the meat of the ASOP. And so they have issues of, you know, data and, you know, all different things that you're supposed to do. But the item, and this is long, um, and this is a long ASOP. Uh, if you've never seen these, they actually tend to be fairly short and very high level. So this one is actually kind of unusual and there are reasons for that. So the section I'm looking at is 3.11, low default risk obligation measure. And there was a lot of disputes over what to even call this item that is being required to be part of the actuarial report. So here we go. When performing a funding valuation, the actuary should calculate and disclose a low default risk obligation measure of the benefits earned or costs accrued if appropriate under the actuarial cost method used for this purpose. As of the measurement date, the actuary need not calculate and disclose this obligation measure more than once a year. When calculating this measure, the actuary should use an immediate gain actuarial cost method. When calculating this measure, the actuary should select a discount rate or discount rates derived from low default risk fixed income securities whose cash flows are reasonably consistent with the pattern of benefits expected to be paid in the future. Examples of discount rates that may meet these requirements include, but are not limited to, the following. A. U.S. Treasury yields. B, rates implicit in settlement of pension obligations, including payment of lump sums and purchases of annuities from insurance companies. C, yields on corporate or tax-exempt general obligation municipal bonds that receive one of the two highest ratings given by a recognized ratings agency. D, non-stabilized ERISA funding rates for single-employer plans and 
E, multi-employer current liability rates. When plan provisions create pension obligations that are difficult to appropriately measure using traditional evaluation procedures, such as benefits affected by actual investment returns, movements in a market index, or other similar factors, the actuary should consider using alternative valuation procedures, such as those blah, 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 blah. Okay, you know, I'm not continuing on with this, but I am going to go to the last paragraph. The actuary should provide commentary to help the intended user understand the significance of the low default risk obligation measure with respect to the funded status of the plan, plan contributions, and the security of the participant benefits. The actuary should use professional judgment to determine the appropriate commentary for the intended user. This is a new measure they're going to have to communicate the meaning of this new measure, especially since for most of these plans, this measure, and this is for public plans. If you notice, I mentioned multi-employer current liability rates, and uh, there was some other, I'm sorry, there's stuff for single employer plans as well. So um, the multi-employer and single employer plans for private plans they are already covered by this. The way that they're being measured already are just fine, but not true for public pension plans. The public pension plans, most of them are using discount rates that are going to differ by quite a lot and discounting by say 7% and discounting by say 4% is going to have a very different impact. I decided to look at the most recent yield curve because I love pain. Um, <laughs> dear Lord. Uh, so as of 20th of December, 2023, the 30 year rate is just under 4%. It's 3.98%. 20 year rate, 4.17%. 10 year rate, 3.86%. Like, and I'm getting an idea of when Larry wrote his piece because, uh, it wasn't in December. Um, 4.69%. That must have been sometime in November. I'll have to go back and look. Um, the yield curve has been all over the place. Now, the short-term rates have been much higher. This is a very inverted yield curve. The one-year rate is 4.88%. The six-month rate is 5.33%. Um, Four-month rate, 5.45%. But like those very short-term rates are not terribly uh, relevant. Um, but yeah, if you were discounting at 4%, okay, so discounting at 4% for 20 years is, uh, you know, something would be like at 45% their present value uh, versus 7%. And so that would be at 26%. So like if it was a um, $1,000, uh, so, you know, 258, I'm sorry, it's like $258 now to get a thousand dollars 20 years from now, um, at a 7% discount rate, uh, versus like 450. So those are very different amounts of money that you would have to contribute, uh, for those kinds of differences. So think about that in terms of what the funded rate would be like. So what has happened is various groups, not necessarily actuaries. So these are 
Other groups that are like public plan administrators and that kind of thing have developed this toolkit to try to come up with some communications that can go along with this new number that will be absolutely eye-popping uh, with regards to the gap for definitely plans that were already underfunded with regards to discounting at, say, 7% are going to look awful at just absolutely abysmal at 4%. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> The public pension actuaries are obviously working with these groups. The The actuaries have aligned, and I'm going back to Larry Pollack's uh, text, these actuaries have aligned with major public advocacy groups in developing a toolkit as part of a campaign to help actuaries and public officials divert attention from the significance and implications of the new figure. Among other things, the toolkit provides model explanatory language for actuarial reports, including the misleading assertion that the difference between the new measure and the current one represents expected taxpayer savings from investing in risky assets rather than heretofore hidden public debt. Oh, just wait until I get a hold of one of these new reports, because I have some alternative language that I'm absolutely going to be using. I'm just waiting for these reports to come out. Underfunded, and I'm going back to Larry's piece, underfunded pension obligations will eventually threaten the ability of many state and local governments to provide, uh, to provide needed services, make good on their other debt, or pay their promised pension benefits. So I'm sorry, Larry, I am pushing back on you. What do you mean eventually threaten? Eventually threaten, my dude, my dude. Uh, some places already ran into that trouble where the pensions, uh, Rhode Island, okay, let's just point to the entire state of Rhode Island. And if you think New Jersey hasn't already been uh, affected, or Kentucky, or Illinois, and Chicago, um, they have been absolutely affected by their underfunded pension obligations. All of these places, Rhode Island definitely overpromised. Um, we've had Dallas police and fire. We have Houston. We have, there's so many, uh, what is it? San Diego, um, Los Angeles. Already these places using the old measures, using the old measures and the old patterns of contributions, um, of trying to do the tricks to make it look cheaper than it already was. This is not you know, this is not doing anybody any favors. Um, and what's really sad, of course, is the treasury rates that they're going to be able to use for these measures for this first, you know, low default risk measure that's coming out is a lot higher than it would have been if they had to use the interest rates in 2020. Uh, so be happy that you're getting to use the 2023 uh, interest rates for your first stab at this after there's been a huge hike in longer term interest rates. Yes, I'm sure you would have liked to have used the 1980s interest rates, but you get what you get. Um, and 
anticipate that there will be very annoying outside voices that are going to point out the difference between a low default risk valuation and the risky valuation that you are um, using and have been using is this taxpayer's put and for many of these places, such as, say, the state of Illinois, those taxpayers did not stay put. If you heard the recent news, they're not there to be taxed. A lot of the taxpayers with money and the wherewithal to leave the state did. So maybe the stakeholders, which are the pensioners, current pensioners, and the people who would love to be pensioners in the future should be told the truth that that difference is a risk. There's a default risk being measured there. And maybe you think you'll be long gone too by the time the promises are being defaulted on. People will not appreciate that, I know. People never like it when you tell them bad news. People uh, have blamed me for being the person who has been deliberately underfunding these freaking pensions. I'm sorry. I'm not the one who de decided not to make the contributions. I don't live in Chicago. I don't live in Illinois. I live in New York State. And I'm very happy that now New York State is going to show these gaps um, however, New York State and New York State does have some of the practices that make the pension obligations look cheaper than they actually are. However, New York State uh, has, you know, modified the pension promises. So they're less rich than they were. And, you know, for new entrants, but also they've made full contributions. New York City, on the other hand, but New York State <laughs> plans. Um, there are individual plans within the state of New York that aren't doing so hot, New York City, um, but they're nowhere near as bad as Chicago. Um, they're nowhere near as bad as New Jersey, you know, Rhode Island was. And it does not behoove us as an actuarial profession and I have pointed out to my fellow actuaries who are not public pension actuaries that the, the public in general is not going to distinguish between different types of actuaries when they are going to come to assign blame. It's going to be the entire actuarial profession they will be coming for. Anytime anything goes wrong with insurance, you know, like auto insurance, it'll come to me. I have nothing to do with auto insurance, okay? It's also like when it's my fault that mortality risk is, is going bad. It's like, okay, I don't, I didn't do that, but mm, mm, okay, guys. But uh, let me go to uh, John Burry, who is a pension actuary. Um, and he was responding also to Larry Pollock's piece. So he looked at what Larry had to write. And so he went to um, a slideshow that the Conference of Consulting Actuaries did uh, with what is it that, um, you know, what's involved with this low default risk obligation measure. And it goes through the ASOP. So you're going to base this measure on benefits earned or costs accrued as of the measurement date. So that's in the ASOP. Use immediate gain cost method 
I really don't want to explain that right now. Um, so you're going to use this discount rate or discount rates so like a yield curve uh, from low default risk fixed income securities. So that can be treasuries. It can be municipal bonds. It could be corporate bonds with a good credit rating, etc. And what is interesting in John Burry's uh commentary i mean he he puts a little how shall we say he inserts his own voice at one point um so if the actuary concludes based on the assessment required that the contribution allocation procedure or plans funding policy is significantly inconsistent with the plan accumulating adequate assets to make benefit payments when due, disclose that conclusion as well as an estimate of the approximate time until assets are depleted. Page 24. Wondering where they could have gotten this idea. And it links to a, a post Burry did back in 2010, where it was drop dead dates for state pensions of when the cash would run out. Now, of course, I'm just going to tell you what some of these numbers are. Now that they no longer hold, this was a projection done, very simplified assumptions in 2010. And I made my own spreadsheet with, and using actually a similar kind of approach back uh, I, and I do need to do an update. Maybe I'll make that my Christmas present to y'all. Um, but a lot of these drop dead dates for these plans were in the 2020s. So for example, Alabama employees, 2026, and I'm just, I'm not reading all of these. He did a hundred of the largest um, public plans. Illinois Judges 2022, Illinois General Assembly, which is very poorly funded, 2017. These are still around. None of these have run out of cash. Illinois Teachers 2021. Um, let's see. Do I have Chicago in here? No, these are all state plans. I'm sorry. So these are all state plans. Uh, New York State Teachers 2022, New York State and Local 2025. Uh, North Carolina Fire and Rescue 2023. Now, none of these have run out of cash. Um, yet, <laughs> uh, a lot of these have adjusted since 2010 and, uh, yes, some of them got some federal cash during the pandemic, but that's not why they haven't run out of cash since 2010. A lot of them have increased their contributions a lot since 2010. A lot of them have actually reduced their benefits since 2010 and that's why they haven't run out of cash yet but we have not had it necessarily these drop dead dates as part of actual reports some of them do um, and some actual reports do have it as a matter of course um, another thing that john Burry writes is the pension task force suggested calculation and disclosure of a solvency liability this topic evolved through the three exposure drafts this uh, low default risk obligation measure is similar to, but not as strict as solvency liability. And this was one of the things that I had, I think I had put in my comment letters over the years. I remember, I think one was in 2015 in the development of this ASOP was that we have multiple measures of life insurance and annuity 
uh, liabilities, definitely life insurance, because we realize there's different reasons for measurement of the liability. Statutory measurement of liability is like a solvency liability. It's to protect the policyholder in case of an insolvency of the life insurer. So similarly for a pension obligation, you could say, what if the employer, you know, <laughs> I, I was about to use, okay, uh, is no longer around or no longer able to make further contributions. You want to make sure there is enough contributions in the pension plan to cover the benefit already accrued. So that's like a solvency liability. Um, in my perspective, that's probably not what they had in mind. Um, but the whole point of statutory from a regulatory perspective, um, the regulators want to make sure policyholders are protected, that their promises are covered. So it's conservative. Uh, we want low default risk assets backing the liabilities. And that's just, you know, covering the promise. There's st statutory capital on top of that in case of, you know, like a pandemic or something adverse on top of that. That's for life insurance. Uh, but then there's what we have that's the gap measurement, GAAP, and that's for shareholders, that's for publicly traded companies, where we want something closer to an economic measure. And so what a lot of the public pension actuaries are saying is like, oh, this is more like an economic measure. Well, if this is an economic measure, why is that at all appropriate for a public pension plan? Oh, you know, it's like, oh, taxpayer equity, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't think it's an appropriate measure. Okay, uh, you know, if you were a pensioner, what would you prefer? The economic measure being put into your pension plan? Or do you want, you know, the actual guarantee that you're going to get paid? Especially since there is no backstop. The only backstop is that taxpayers supposedly there that will make you whole if the assets run out. But the problem is, if the assets run out, it is probably because the taxpayers aren't around or willing to pay the taxes to pay for your pensions. Okay, so how secure does that make you feel as a pensioner? Just a thought. Merry Christmas! Happy New Year! And I'm looking forward to seeing these reports when they come out. So maybe let's not get too cutesy in trying to sell this as a savings to taxpayers because a lot of us will have very good examples of pension fund failures which have already existed from people trying to make the pensions look too cheap and not making high enough contributions. I'm not trying to destroy the public pensions. I'm trying to make sure that the promises that have been made get fulfilled. And if it's because you know oh, the, the promises, you're making them look too expensive. Well, maybe they are very expensive promises, in which case we need to think about what promises are sustainable. I've written about that before in the past of something that is a little less rich and maybe a lot more stable and a lot easier to fund. So think about that. That's been Stump. 
Death and Taxes. Talk to you another time.